local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily welcome to the local environment heroes podcast a podcast that brings you a series of chats with some amazing local heroes from here in Canberra and from further afield who are doing ace things for our world. The podcast is produced and supported by the Canberra Environment Centre and your hosts are Fiona Verkinen, the Deputy Director of the CEC and Julie Bolton, a sustainability strategist based in Canberra. Local environment hero. All right. This is working? Yep, this is working. Okay. Fiona, we're up to episode three already. Can you believe it? It's fantastic. There's so many good stories out there. We have no shortage of guests coming on. This guest today, I have been trying to interview him for about a year. I first met um, Dr. Bjorn Sternberg, who is our guest today. I met him last year around October, I think it was, at an ACT schools climate conference. Um, He came up to me in the break and we just started chatting because clearly we weren't the high school students <laughs> there. He looked more like a high school student than I did <laughs> just because I'm really old and tired. But anyway, we had this great chat and it turned out that we'd both written children's books um, and he said, hey, I should come in and talk about my children's book on your podcast. And I said, you absolutely should. So I've been looking forward to this chat for a really long time. What I'm going to start with is tell you a bit about his background or what it says on his website because he's not just a children's book author he is not and when you read this you might think oh hang on how did he get to writing a children's book which we're going to go into so dr bjorn is a research leader in the battery storage and grid integration program where he's engaged in projects on electric transport advanced sensors power system security policy and regulations sounds very intense and very deep he has a phd in theoretical physics which i love because i've always loved meeting people with a phd in theoretical (laughs) physics because they sound incredible so he holds a phd from the university of sydney on nanostructured solar cells um he's just generally amazingly smart about renewable energy and clearly really really passionate about it And if you just read that on his website, you'd go, oh, okay, we're going to have a big chat about renewable energy and maybe it'll be quite dry and I wonder what this chat's going to be like. Well, Fiona, what do you want to tell our (laughs) listeners about this? When when I read that summary on the website, I just thought, oh, no, I don't know enough about about this to have an intelligent conversation. But what I discovered with Bjorn is that a lot of the challenges around renewable technologies don't just lie in the science, but in people and our behaviour and our connections and our community values have impact in this sector, which I just found so fascinating, this whole human element, um, which is part of the challenge of transforming to renewable energies. Yeah, yeah the discussion, really opened my eyes. The discussion around the work he's done with rental properties mm. and putting solar panels on rental properties – so it's not just a simple exercise of, well, we'll ring the rental property manager and go, we'll put the panels on. It's actually speaking to the property manager and getting the property manager to understand why this is important, to mm. then talk to the landlord, the owner of the property to understand, to get the renters who might be already be on side, but to have that conversation. Like There's a lot of networking, conversation and softly, softly mm. behavioural change education yeah. that he's all about that's going yeah. on in the background. And I yeah. think... Maybe that's why he wrote the book. So the children's book, Amy's Balancing Act, an inspiring tale about clean energy, available all over Canberra, 
uh, and online. Yep. Highly recommend. Also his website. Yep. Highly recommend you get onto his website and order a copy. It's awesome. Like it's really it, – the thing that surprised me about this, um, I found it really a really interesting take on this concept of respecting the horse. Mm. You gotta, you've got to read the book or you've got to listen to this podcast to understand what I'm talking about there. But really respecting – what's gone before yeah. and understanding that, well, that was part of the journey that we've had. Now mm-hmm. we've got to move mm-hmm. and we've got to move for all of these really good reasons and it's going to be, it's going to be great because it means we can share the load and it is a balancing act, but make sure we do it in a – or think about doing it in this respectful way. Yeah, bringing people along for the ride, not just trampling over what's gone before. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I love this chat. Mm. I hope our re- listeners do too. Absolutely. Uh, and just keep an eye out for keep an ear out for Julie getting pretty excited about um, an alternative to the end of news financial report. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got a gem of an idea in here, people. If anyone wants to fund it, just give me listen a call. <laughs> All right, Let's listen go. on. Welcome. It's so great to have you here. We've been looking forward to talking to you for about, gosh, it must be about four or five months, I think. We've been planning this chat. Mm. <laughs> I reckon that's about right, yeah. Awesome. We have the first question, which is ready to put you in the mood. It's always a good one to uh, open with. Uh-huh. What is something that's happened in your life that really made you stop and go, okay, something's got to change? Probably the the black summer although it was recently pointed out to me it's really started fire started before the summer um mm. that was probably the most existential i felt so i feel like maybe i'll come back to that i also thinking about this question live now am reminded of a postcard that i got up at the woodford folk festival and would, would have been the end of 2009 or 2010 whichever way you count a decade and there was all the series like what's your new new decades resolution and that the sentiment at that time was very much like, right, this is the decade, like we have mm. to do it now. So that was, I think, a moment where I felt like, all right, like something's got to change and this, this is the time for that. And I bring that up because it was pretty dire, like what then <laughs> did transpire, which is absolutely nothing, mm. which maybe then gets you to uh, the black summer, black all than summer plus plus fires. I just remember sitting here in, in Canberra, we were renting an apartment down in Kingston and kind of just sitting there for days on end just in the black being asphyxiated. Yeah, with all the windows shut, yeah. door yeah. shut, yeah. yeah. And like that that really was just like it's indescribable. And we've been like nothing that I am – I didn't lose any loved ones. My parents' house was fine. I wasn't losing anything sitting here in the built-up city of Canberra, so it's nothing compared to those actually mm-hmm. kind of experiencing the fire more kind of within arm's reach. But still, just the scale of it, I would just sit there and kind of looking at the maps of all my favourite national parks across the country and just like, holy shit, there goes two-thirds of the Blue Mountains World mm. Heritage Area. Oh, and there goes like the, mm. the Butterwings. And just like everywhere. Yeah. It was just, I don't know if that's this is when something has to change or just kind of like, I don't know, something else, something more overwhelming mm. and, and dire. You were already um, on the path to making change though, weren't you, before that happened? Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't in a, a moment of like, oh, okay, like I now want to care about the environment or do something about this. Um, but I think in terms of the overwhelmingness of yeah. it, 
So it's this defining moment. It's all these other things that are happening channeled into a particular moment where it's really like something needs to change. Yeah, something yeah. just visceral. Yeah. Not to start it. They don't want to start this off too too sadly, but kind of that, that wasn't particularly given the the federal government that we had at the time, that wasn't a kind of like, oh, something's got to change. This is so blatantly, obviously kind of mm. kind of in everyone's face all across the country. This will not be the like turning point in which things yeah. will change. Like that didn't eventuate mm. in the slightest, and so that kind of is another a kicker of that kind of sentiment of like, all right, we all I think we all agree that this is the time of change. Oh no, there's no carry through mm. to that change. Mm. Mm. Why don't you think change happened after that? Because it was such a significant event. All three mm. of us were in Canberra. We've all got, had experiences of it, and we speak to a lot of people that that was such a terrible moment. What's stopping us from? changing really big question yeah i I think the the prime minister and the the federal government that we had at the time kind of is pretty culpable for the immediate reaction or the kind of at least the way they spun or or suppressed or kind of well we had a pm that was in hawaii yeah i think that that for the immediate term was a big part of it but then i think also the enormity of it and that we then all got locked in our, like that same little of one bedroom apartment in my case Mm-mm. for the next couple of years. Yeah. I think that that also somehow suppressed it in some really unhelpful uh, way. Yeah, but I've heard some people say that COVID, like if COVID hadn't have happened when it happened, maybe things, maybe there would have been more action or maybe action at, at all would have happened. Like COVID happening when it happened, it was unfortunate. It was unfortunate anyway, but it was really unfortunate. Mm. It was bad timing. Mm. But then I wonder, I feel like a, a lot of the change we're now seeing probably does owe some of its origins to that time. Mm. I don't think anyone, even with COVID, anyone forgot about those fires. It's an opportunity that wasn't seized in the moment, but it's not an event that isn't going to stay with yeah. us and inform me throughout my life. Yeah. Probably both of you and, and mm. pretty much anyone who was here and internationally. Yeah. Mm. Like, I think that will be a, t- a turning point if psychologically, if not in kind of policy or practice. You have had an amazing and really varied background, Bjorn. So we were keen for you to tell us more about what drives you. To do all the things yeah. that you're doing. So tell us, tell us first of all, like all the things that you're involved in. So the First of all, I love the fact that you're a theoretical physicist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that, that just sounds so cool. That's something that I've put to not a huge amount of use ever since <laughs> like, completing my PhD, but it sits in the, in the back of my mind somewhere. So kind of off the back of that PhD, I'll see if I can string this narrative together a bit. did a PhD in solar, very theoretically looking at how to improve the efficiency of solar cells using less silicon. Throughout my PhD, I was living in this absolutely fantastic co- cooperative, student cooperative in, in Sydney called Stucco, um, where I met my beautiful wife and lots of other fun things happened. And... While there, it wasn't my own idea, um, it was a friend's idea, Louis, to see if we could get solar and batteries installed into this apartment building. That sounded like a good idea. Now, probably it was a good idea, but it also cost us probably two years of our life kind of making that happen. We had some support from the city of Sydney. So long story short, we did get that system installed. It's the first time in Australia that an apartment building got solar and batteries and in kind of the, the kicker that we hadn't realised. The was, first time. Hang on, what year yeah, was this? This would have been the end of 2015. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that we hadn't realised as kind of a, a small detail in our plans for doing this is that we would change the building from being a bunch of eight independent households that had their own electricity accounts to just having one account for the, mm-hmm. the whole cooperative. 
that, as it turned out, naive as we were to this at the point, was actually a huge kind of thorn in the side of Australian energy regulations mm. and that ended up costing us $120,000 worth of pro bono legal, legal fees wow. to sort out. Wow. wow. All in the interest of just installing a pretty humble amount of solar – well, pretty humble amount of, of solar in the scheme of things. The, so we the spent, impediments we put in our way. Yeah. So we spent $80,000 on, on hardware and installation and $120,000 on – Thankfully, pro bono legal fees. But that was a turning point for me where it's like, all right, it's not, it's not the science, it's not the technology mm-hmm. that's holding us up here. Mm. Yeah. Like it's everything else. It's all the like human-constructed things. And so that's then kind of been a thread that I've followed for the last eight-ish years. Mm-hmm. Now, initially to try and take what we'd learned at Stucco and apply it to solar for rental properties, standalone rental properties, because that was easier than the whole embedded network kind of apartment side of things. Did that for a couple of years with the support of the Maya Foundation and then sold that business that I'd set up to Sora Analytics, another company that's doing somewhat similar things or using the same hardware, providing the same analytics and then could apply it to rental properties. And then I came down to Canberra and joined there and used the second person in a group called the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program, which is a mouthful, but really our interest is on, particularly my own, is on, on the grid integration side. How do we get all solar batteries, electric vehicles, everything else, smart appliances to work together. And we do that with a real keen eye on the kind of people involved, be that the regulators would kind of end up having these interesting conversations where we're interviewing some of the people who made my life so difficult getting mm. their solar batteries installed, but also a lot of time interviewing everyday Australians around the country on, on kind of how they would like their energy provided. So are you seeing a big shift in what people are saying? Like people, or are people always saying we want solar? They just, you know, there's just too many impediments in the way for them actually making the decision or making the change themselves. Yeah, we definitely see strong themes. So I'm, I, that's more a colleague of mine who leads the social research side. I'm kind of doing more of the modelling stuff, which is a bit back to my PhD roots. Mm-hmm. But what we do find, I've worked very closely with the, the social research teams, is that a common theme is trust the lack thereof, which to me echoes very strongly of the solar for rental properties dilemma mm. where, in a nutshell, it's the problem there is that renters don't own, trust their landlords, landlords don't, don't trust renters, and neither of them trust the property manager. And so you just have this kind of triangle of regret, no one <laughs> trusting anyone, and that's the problem. Like actually getting solar installed on a rental property is extremely straightforward and there's heaps of value there to share between the parties. There's just not the, the social contract between them mm. to make it work. And our work throughout electric vehicles, uh, solar, home batteries and kind of managed batteries in the home. Um, what else have we looked at? Currently looking at microgrids. There's a very, very strong theme of kind of mistrust in the energy system, particularly kind of the privatised energy system. And that is a, a huge a huge impediment. It just makes it difficult for people to lean into what is, is quite a dramatic change quite a substantial amount of investment to make into their own property and if they're not sure how things work, if they're going to work, if the kind of solar system's going to last for the time it's advertised for or there are kind of people doing pushy sales techniques that come into their door, all of those things just undermine their, their trust and willingness or ability to invest in it in a kind of psychological as well as financial sense. So how do you change that trust? How do you, how do you build that trust? One of the things that we often talk about and try and advocate for is just more you know, involvement of people in the process. 
uh, kind of particular stick at the moment is around that we we don't need solar on everyone's roof. We don't necessarily even need community batteries, which is a bit of a mis- mystifying term, but sounds good. None of these things are substitutes for or uh, absolve us of the need for a really clear plan of how we are going to decarbonise our lives and in our particular interest, how we're going to decarbonise the electricity system and private transport. That's what people need. That's what people want. They want a plan. They want to understand that plan. And critically, they want to be involved in the process of coming up with that plan. So I think that that engagement of people, as well as the ability of people to, to opt out of that engagement, not everyone has the desire or definitely not the time and the willingness to, to participate in that, but to have the option of that and to feel the trust that well, I was invited to participate, my neighbours were, my friends were, I trust that within the social fabric there are people like myself standing up for things that mattered to me as well. Yeah, so engaging the renters, the landlords, really understanding what the, it is that yeah. their concerns are. Yeah, and the property managers are, I think, are a hugely neglected part of the, mm. the challenge for rental properties. These are largely kind of doing the actual property management rather than auctioning. is mm. not a glamorous or the mm. high-profile job. They're hugely overworked, stressed individuals who don't have the, the time to train themselves and they don't want extra processes, like an extra thing for them to manage an extra even an extra conversation for him to have with the property owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what, what's in it for them? They're just going to not understand and feel silly. Like mm-hmm. how do we get them to be the champions of this instead? Mm. You sit there and go, oh, solar on roofs, like on rental properties. Well, it should just happen. You don't stop and think about, well, actually, who do you talk to and whose responsibility is it and how do you get them all to work together and how do you get them to see the benefit in yeah. this? Like it's a massive behavioural change. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all, all the relational elements to it yeah but you've done more than that like more than just these like i mean these are all fascinating things but you have a book i have a book i have a book two books to give you you have awesome (laughs) i want them signed so okay awesome so okay this is then this is how i first met bjorn at a a conference for climate change conference for kids well not really kids they're like young (laughs) adults you're 11 and 12 students last Mm -hmm, year that mm -hmm. they're um, ACT government smart schools program put on and they just brought a whole lot of people in to talk to kids and the kids were gosh they switched were, on they were switched on kids they were smart and they were asking really good questions and had some really insightful comments to make and Bjorn was there unfortunately I had to go just before Bjorn spoke but Bjorn came up and said hey I've got this book and this is what I talk about and I'm like awesome we need to talk to you more so the you, book you mentioned that you had a book well, this true. is how it started <laughs> okay so I might have mentioned I had a book also I want to talk about your book <laughs> you're on the show today so you've got a book Amy's Balancing Act yeah why did you want to write a book what was the what was the impetus behind writing a children's book so for this also, got to think back to the dark, dark days of previous government, not yep. much going on. Yeah. And particularly energy and the energy transition being kind of flamed up as this kind of cultural kind of war issue. And so the, the idea or the, the motivation for this was how can, how can you capture what's going on in the energy transition in a way that both can be understood by everyone in Craig's Castle's review of the book is that it's good for young children and old politicians and mm-hmm. that was very much the, mm-hmm. the goal, kind yeah, of awesome. putting those two quite closely together. But also how can you um, kind of, this is one of the meanings of balancing acts, 
how can you balance the story in such a way that you're respectful to the old energy system, to everything that it's done for us for generations, but also super clear-eyed about the fact that it's old, it's incompatible with a safe climate and it's going to be retired, and it's going to be retired quickly, and that that's nothing to fear. There are We have absolutely perfectly functional ways of doing 100% renewable energy and that that's not a future to be to be scared of. So how can you try and diffuse that culture war element of energy change as well as kind of the more uh, pedagogical kind of educating, kind of making kids and everyone understands how does solar work, how does wind work, or at least solar works when the sun shines, when, when the wind blows, mm. and then there's always they're like, well, ha, ha, ha. Well, those two, two things don't always happen. And so trying to capture that in a really simplistic way that like, yeah, we just use sun when it does shine, wind when it does, and then we have storage for the rest. Mm-hmm. All right, kind of like, Sounds that's so simple. <laughs> like, yeah, kind of let's, let's all move on. Mm-hmm. I like this concept of, and I find this quite novel, respecting what's gone before, like respecting the energy system that we have had because I think it's mm. often not like I think we come or I probably come to a point going oh that's so bad it's so bad we need to move on and maybe that's not the right approach to take because you're immediately then putting a negative connotation and putting people on the defensive Mm. whereas your approach of saying well actually let's respect what we've had because maybe we didn't know when we first started using it that it was bad like we just thought well like it gave us so many new inventions and technologies and things that we just went okay this is great and only Mm. later did we come to realise actually maybe this is not such a good thing? Yeah, and that was that was probably decades in the past and we could have been a lot quicker about this. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but still I think I think you're exactly right. And it's not it's being respectful to coal in particular in, in this book, kind of as a substance, as a technology, but also as all the communities that support yeah, coal fired power stations. Yeah. So gracefully and, retiring yeah. Yeah, and, this technology. And the toughest part of the book, not to give away the ending but there's a character in it which is an old Clydesdale horse who represents coal mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. has old been with us for a long time kind of big and clunky and the hardest thing in writing the book and what I got a lot of feedback for over the years it was a long project in the making is how to how to balance that so that people don't feel too much affiliation or like too much love for yeah, the horse and yeah. then it's sad to see it go at the end but also do love the horse because like they're not there to be demonized mm. and that all ties into another audience for whom I wrote the book, which was for kind of my peers who work in energy, who I feel are largely engineers and or economists, both of whom aren't hugely in touch with their emotions, I feel. Um, and who are, but are going through a lot of emotions in this transition. Like they've yeah. spent, in, not in my case, but in colleagues' case, decades, their whole working lives working with a particular energy system that was done a certain way and that they understood and now they've got to kind of let go of that mm. and embrace this not only new way of doing things but a way that hasn't been fully worked out that actually does have a bunch of uncertainties in it. Mm. And that's a bit daunting. And I wanted to write a book that kind of brought those emotions to the to the surface and were like, yeah, no, that's actually entirely legitimate to feel that way. And it is a challenge to, I often say, kind of it's about embracing diversity, which is the solution to this. Like, yeah, the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't always blow. But the power of diversity is there to kind of make it all work together. And on that front, it's kind of – it's just front of mind that the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator just bought 20 books yesterday, which is not his first order (laughs) but his biggest order. I love that because that shows the kind of AMO, the people who are really like in the the weeds of this energy transition more than anyone kind of Mm. 
it's resonating there in some way. You've had some pretty high-profile people reading this book. I've, yeah. I've chased them, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Who's the highest profile? He's the biggest superstar. Oh. I mean, Craig Rucastle, Cra- my personal hero, <laughs> having a forward written by him and an endorsement by him is – that's tough not. He, that, was, that was fun. He did the launch in, in Sydney with me. Um, the launch in Canberra here with the Energy Minister, yeah. um, Energy and Climate Change Minister, mm-hmm, Chris mm-hmm. Bowman, that was quite something. And then the combination actually there were also having the ANU Vice-Chancellor, who's a Nobel Laureate in Physics, yeah. mm-hmm. read my kid's book to kids. Mm-hmm. That was just kind of like the novelty of that kind of <laughs> I will keep with me for my yeah. life. Like, why do you have a Nobel Prize in Physics and why are you reading my little kid's book? This is <laughs> odd. He did read it all upside down to his credit, so <laughs> that's like applying some special skills. Like, also in, seriously, like upside down? Down. Yeah, like, so that it, which I'd never I oh, read to my kid all the time, but I get my kid to sit on my lap, and so I get to read it the normal way. But he was sitting there, teacher yeah. style, with teacher style. Yeah, 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 yeah nice skills. Yeah, skills. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have read the book, and I was reflecting on those characters specifically, Gail, and I was and my own energy consumption because recently we got solar panels on our roof. And my husband was saying, wind, wind is next. <laughs> and it made me wonder what the role of wind energy is. Like, is Yeah, could we have windmills yeah. on our houses? Yeah, is that like, next, Bjorn? No. Oh. <laughs> Finally, we're into the really easy question. Nice <laughs> <No. laughs> we're in touch with our emotions. We just don't necessarily know that much about Correct. wind, Correct. solar. <laughs> I like the idea of a windmill in my backyard. Why not? Yes. What's the problem? Because your neighbours don't like the idea of a windmill in your backyard. Right. And the the like I'm not talking about the big one. Like just get a small you, one. you could have a really small one and it would do wind nothing do, for right, you. Right, okay. Like wind yeah. the wind is like you want to be high up to get wind. Yeah. And you want to have a very large blade to make it worth your while. Right, um, okay. So we can see individual solar, like solar panels on houses, but in terms of mini windmills. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. But then okay, no. but then you know how we're talking about the microgrids? So you're talking about like each Street again. I'm making this up. Like at the end of each street, you could have a battery storage in the microgrid that goes out to the street. Could you have a if windmill? That's what a microgrid is. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Us. <laughs> Tell us Let's more. Correct, correct. Audience, yeah. we're learning as we go. <laughs> is there a windmill connected? The, it's one of the interesting things about we're doing a project on the south coast. Very much actually tied again back to the fires. It's about resilience and the energy system down there. Looking at the potential roles for microgrids which will be solely powered by solar. It's only really worthwhile uh, for having a, quite a large wind turbine. It then creates quite a lot of kind of environmental impacts mm. on that scale. Mm. Um, and so small communities like Congo or even the larger communities like Churros Heads, they're not really signed up to have a wind farm put in the middle of their town or in the, the, their beach or, or mm-hmm. whatnot. The role of wind is fantastic because it does actually – It's generally actually a little bit correlated towards the evening time and the night time. So mm-hmm. it's actually mm-hmm. a, we're extremely lucky in the sense that it does naturally kind of complement solar in that way. And then kind of on a, on a macro scale, that's how we'll use it. We'll have okay. lots, of, lots of wind and it covers us a lot of nights as well as during the days. That's the role of wind. In the microgrid, it's going to be solar rather than wind. And it's really interesting to do the, the – pretty basic sums on how much energy these communities use. And it's it's substantial. Mm. So it's, in my view at least, very unlikely that all of that power will come from rooftop solar. So we do really have a, a critical need for transmission 
lines for big solar farms, for big wind farms, so that we can use energy the way we want to in our communities. The way we envisage roughly a microgrid stepping in for resilience if the south coast is once again cut off from Mm -hmm. the rest of the grid Mm. is that you would run it from the solar that's on people's roofs plus perhaps some small solar farms and some medium-sized batteries. Now, if you wanted that to run for multiple days, you'd be asking everyone to restrict their energy use, which in kind of anomalous circumstances I think is entirely reasonable. Yeah. And the analogy that I like to draw, and it's actually the subject of a lot of our social research down there is the analogy with water restrictions, Mm. which again is something that isn't a smart software system that water restricts you. Mm -hmm. It's a social contract. It's a relational thing where you and your neighbours kind of agree that, okay, we don't have much water. We're going to adapt the way we use water for the next little period. Mm. And that's how I imagine kind of broadly working for microgrids as well. And with water, I love that analogy because you see it as a precious resource And when we've had those water restrictions in the past, I haven't thought, oh, I thought, well, yeah, I'm doing my bit. And there's this element of pride in being water smart and being a part of that. Totally, Mm. 100%. And maybe Mm. we've never thought about energy that way. I think we ought to. I think one of the things that thinking thinking of energy and the grid is kind of a common good, Mm. common resource Mm. that's there to share. I think it's something that I see being really accurate and also being able to be internalised. Although you remember, like I remember my parents, you know, when I was growing up, going around going, turn off all the lights, turn off the lights, switch all the lights off. And that was, well, you don't need, like we're saving energy, like you mm. don't need to use the mm. energy. And I wonder if, again, it's something that maybe we've lost over the last little while and we've got to bring it back, like respect the energy, respect water, respect the environment. And, and we've deferred that now to kind of, yeah, you turn off the lights because the tariff is a little bit higher at this time or whatnot. Is that a price signal? Like, and it just doesn't have the same resonance. Yeah, that no, yeah. We're doing this because of the social good, the common good, because it's the right thing to do, yeah. because it's saving the environment, any of these other kind of non-financial values that we hold. Mm. And that's another thing that comes up very strongly in our social research is that there is people care about more than money. I mean, you heard it here first. Here, <laughs> It's more about tapping into those intrinsic values and that sense of being something bigger and having an impact yeah. rather than just saving three cents. To- totally. <laughs> and even saving 30 cents or like you save $300. Mm. That's a quite a lot. And that's just going to send those who can afford $300 and not think about it are still mm. going to run their microwave or mm. their oven or their pool pump at that time. And all the nanas who are on the pension who can't afford $300 yeah. are then going to curl up in bed at 4 p.m. Yeah. And that's what we have seen throughout energy crises kind of over the last 10 years that I've mm. been paying attention to mm. it. That you kind of, we, we try and use price signals as a way to incentivize or force certain action. And like that, or that sends the nanas to bed at 4 p.m. well mm. before it drives the mainstream impact that we're after. Yeah, because they and can't afford to put the yeah. heating on or they can't, like yeah. cooling, it's too hot inside. Like, yeah. yeah, I just think the inequity that is going on with that is. It's huge. And, and then even once you like, then you increase the prices even more and it starts to impact middle class Australians and then the political pressure comes too large and then mm. the government finally does do the right thing and step in and deal with mm. it. But the kind of the actual kind of pure, ideal, fantasised economic outcome that you mm. just adjust the price signal mm. until an investor somewhere does something, we never actually get to that point because that would be so painful that we would all be in bed by 4pm and not... Like, yeah. So... The market, in that sense, is not driving the change that we that we need. What's the importance of government policy or regulation versus individual responsibility or ability to change 
It's really it's not a really big question. <laughs> yeah, my, my sensitivities are, are much more towards kind of government action and, and government incentives, policies, regulations, the rest of it, and being a bit less um, didactic or kind of ideological about it is more to my sensitivities are more towards kind of communal actions rather than individual actions mm. with individual actions then being to me just kind of one step or already in the, the camp of kind of market solutions yeah and back to this water rationing idea so that we're thinking of that in terms of microgrids after a fire say or whatnot there's no reason that we couldn't use that as a kind of another complement to this this balancing act where if we do have a period where the grid or the continent as a whole doesn't have much sun or much wind for a week that we then all say, oh, well, okay. And we can see that coming in the weather forecast. And then we say, all right, next week, everyone just please like kind of calm the farm, just use a little bit less power. And that'll save us having to overbuild our transmission grid an extra yeah. 50%, build mm. an extra mm. like 20 wind farms that we only need for that one week a year. There always is a way that you can just build your way out of these problems. Mm. But the impacts in terms of like local environment, resources consumed, all the rest of it is disproportionate. I feel like you could almost design a whole new like weather segment in the news. It, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, here's the weather. Okay, this is what's coming up. So everyone, this is what you need to do and these are the reasons why. And then you also have, instead of just the finances side of things with the finance report, it's actually, well, here's the energy and here's the consumption levels. And you yeah. bring all of that into play also. And you, you could totally shift the news. Yeah. It could and be amazing. Totally. And you can entirely ditch the finance section as yeah, Richard yeah, yeah. Dennis, well. I think, pointed out. No one who's like actively trading on the ASX waits till the 7 p.m. news, the end of the 7 p.m. news before <laughs> figuring out what's happening. Although I do quite like the outfits sometimes in the comments and the weird graphs. They can keep they can keep they weird graphs and outfits and all of that and just be talking about weather and yeah. energy instead. Yeah. Mm, I like this. Amazing. Ooh. Amazing. <laughs> Julie's you guys, next you guys project. Can get, I know, I'm thinking. You can pitch for the role. Yeah. I'm always do become a presenter. Gosh, well, it's not going to be me being the president of the world, but we are going to go to the hero mm, question. Let's do it. And the first one is, you have just been elected president of the world. What's the first change or the one change you try to implement first and why? So the, the one I'm going to go for is not, not immediately perhaps environmental, but kind of dealing with inequality. Mm. Um, it's been a bit of a theme of this conversation. I think that's really the, the driver and facilitator yeah. of, of so much of the problems that we face, including the environmental problems that we face. And mm. that's inequities kind of between countries and within countries that could, if I was president of the world, I feel like the tools you would have and the government's tools we do have today are to deal with kind of uh, unfair trade rules between nations and unfair taxation systems within nations. That, that would be a huge, huge benefit. To make it more environmental, fossil fuel subsidies are just like a glaringly obvious first thing you would do in your sleep. So next, uh, hero question. It is 2030. Describe the world that you see around you. So my two kids, including the currently both in nappies, they're both going to be in school. It's going to be a bit weird. And yeah, thinking of kind of how they would walk to our local primary school, that kind of got me thinking like I wonder what would have changed there in the the little forests of, of Watson. Possibly not that much, but perhaps the, the micro forest that's been built there has mm-hmm, been expanded mm-hmm. to the little pet patch of park that's closer to us. That it's would be a very cool micro forest. That would be mm. lovely. Yeah. We had a great great little festival there on Sunday. Um, 
And then zooming out kind of more nationwide, we've been promised we'd have 82% renewables by 2030, which I think is quite achievable. It's really mm-hmm. quite ambitious when you actually think about it. It mm-hmm. must be like 79 or 80 months or something from now. That's not a lot of time. What are we at now? About 25. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So a huge yeah. increase. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe 20, between 25 and 30% now. Mm. Um, and that's across a year, 82% renewables. And so unsurprisingly to achieve that, it means running at 100% renewables for substantial periods of time. Mm. That will be a technical breakthrough. That's not something that's done on a national scale anywhere in the world. Mm. So that will be quite quite mm. awesome. And again, the, the people sitting in the control room at AMO, who I know have a copy of this book because – my friend works there. That is a huge stretch for them. That is like not an obvious how we're going to do that. So yep. that'll be absolutely fantastic to see. Yeah. Um, on our roads, we're going to. No one's going to be buying diesel cars, but there'll still be a few diesel cars around them. Quite a few. Now, um, but then at the more kind of macro level, like what will really have changed in terms of our kind of power structures or the way society is organised. That's really an exciting but open book to me. Mm. Not quite sure what will have happened on that front will we be taking sustainability kind of to heart and like across not just kind of niches of trying to get renewables or replace one for one our petrol cars with teslas but will we be trying to live in livable cities with 15 minute commutes on public transport will we be doing agriculture in a way that's regenerative just will we be taking it seriously that's kind of the question yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. gonna be interesting Mm. question number three who are your environmental heroes yeah, this one's a, a, a tough one and I kind of where I landed was that it's kind of anyone who, who cares about the environment and kind of puts that in action you know, yeah. either in kind of big, bold ways but also equally in, in humble and, and with humility kind of ways and to give examples of, of those um, and who's able to kind of overcome in all of these facets is able to overcome what to me is just the like overwhelming enormity of the environmental challenges, mm. plural. Mm-hmm. Like I often kind of get stuck there and anyone who can break past that, keep optimism and keep cracking, absolutely has my respect and admiration. Famous examples of that include Bob Brown and mm-hmm. Christine Mill, I feel just like yeah. <laughs> yes. eternal optimism and kind of advocacy and just... That perseverance. Perseverance, oh, yeah. 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 Gosh. yeah. While kind of seeing so much firsthand. Mm. So that's incredible. But then I was in kind of this last week was doing some work with Australian Parents for Climate Action and the administrative assistant there's not going to unfortunately have a book written about her the way Bob Brown will, but absolute hero, yeah, absolutely fantastic work. Um, and then down to like people who run the local bike shop, people who are doing kind of land regen in local parks, the Watson Microforest people, mm-hmm. uh, all these kind of very small small things. People who work in government departments and are kind of either making good things happen or at least avoiding the very worst things from happening, which some public servants have told me is kind of the greatest impact they often have. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of all of these people, I think, uh, deserve to be heroes. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Oh, that's great. And Bjorn, what is your hot tip for being more environmentally friendly or aware? So, I think we touched on it earlier a little bit. In that, to me, having ownership of things or possession of things, seeing that as a, a huge responsibility, mm. rather than kind of something that you flippantly do, you you Mm. own a phone Mm. and then you Mm. throw it away. Mm. Kind of this goes a lot to the work you've been doing. Seeing that as a a huge responsibility to take care of those things or everything that you own and to also like utilise them and enjoy them Mm. um, and not to have them be wasted. 
Last question. We need a slogan or a mantra from you, like something that you live by. What is it that sums up Bjorn? So I, got, <laughs> I, got, I got two things here and they're in huge, they're in absolute contradiction, <laughs> which was part of the argument with my wife. My wife did not think this was a good answer, but stuff it up. Go I for it. it we'll interview so, her next week. Yeah. So two quotes. Well, yeah, two quotes. One from Bill McKibben, which is that winning slowly on climate change is the same thing as losing. Like, God, that's painful, but true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from Stevie House, there's um, who's a, a mountaineer known for breaking lots of records, kind of speed ascents. you got to go slow to go fast. And to me, yeah. those two things are just like so intention, so in opposition, but all both hold equally true. And trying oh, to I'm hold really that. confused right now. Okay, yeah. you need to explain this. How do you <laughs> hold just, them both together? Yeah, like with huge problem. And it goes a bit to the question about people who are able to get over the, the enormity of the challenges and still just do things. Because if we, we have to go so fast to address climate change, but if we go too fast in a way that means we then have to like stop and go back and retrace our steps, then that's time wasted. It goes a little bit to, I mean, this is very much the tack that Albanese and the current government are taking. of like we just really got to, we know we have to move extremely fast on decarbonisation. We also know we have to bring everyone along on the journey. Yeah. And those two things are, yeah, they're different timescales. They're mm. kind of not compatible, mm. but we've mm. got to do both somehow. And I think that's, that's yeah, I, yeah, I don't have any, I don't feel like I have any good or easy answers for anything, but those, this is not an answer to your question, but I think those two things both are true and worthy of mm. contemplation. Yeah, something to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, finally, where can people buy your book? If you're here in Canberra, you can buy it at the Book Hour as well as Harry Hartog shops, as well as hopefully Dimmicks and other big retailers. And nationally, you can just buy it from the web again, Dimmicks and Booktopia, etc. And then I also sell them on my website, which is com. in which case they'll come signed. Ooh, oh, very yes. nice. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an awesome chat. Thanks for making time and coming in. No, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for the chat. Thanks, Bjorn. Cool environment, heroes, saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily. Local Environment Heroes is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, the traditional custodians of the Canberra area. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and we recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and communities. Subscribe to the Local Environment Heroes podcast wherever you find your podcast and sign up to CEC emails via the CEC website, canberraenvironment.org. Thanks for listening.